how exciting this is. And if you guys have, are, are regular attenders, or, or as I call, you're dating the church, uh, if you guys want to commit and, and go ahead and, and put a ring on it and get married, uh, we will be having more Covenant Community classes coming up within the next several months, and we'll announce when those happen. Well, listen, it is an, another exciting Sunday because it is the first Sunday in Black History Month. And if you guys remember, um, if you were here last year for Black History Month, one of the things we like to do is we, last year we, li- we liked, no, that doesn't make sense. Last year, we thought it would be a good idea to highlight uh, historical African-American churches here in Bed-Stuy that have contributed to the community. This year, we want to do things a, a little differently. I still want to highlight African-Americans, but I wanted to highlight uh, African-American pastors or preachers or ministers that contributed to church history throughout time. Uh, and, and really, this is more of just a, a quick synopsis of, of, these, of these folks, but I would like for you guys to go and research a little bit more about who they are uh, and they all have biographies. The first one I want to bring to you today, and this will take me two seconds, is Richard Allen. This is Bishop Richard Allen. He was born in 1760 in Philadelphia, born into slavery. Uh, in, in 1799, Allen became the first African-American, Richard Allen became the first African-American ordained in the Methodist Episcopal Church. Great story here. He was a part of a church in Philadelphia, a Methodist church that was segregated. So in the church, you'd walk in, they would have a whites only section and they'd have a blacks only section. Well, he thought it was a good idea to go kneel and pray in the whites only section where the deacons ran into this Methodist church, saw him praying, literally picked him up off of his knees and took him outside and threw him outside. African-Americans were outraged at that display during the worship gathering. And so in 18... 16, with the support of other black representatives in the Methodist Church, Allen founded the first African-American Methodist Episcopal Church. It is now known as the AME Church with over 2.5 million members that are connected to this denomination. He found a blacksmith shop two weeks after he was thrown out, found a blacksmith shop, started meeting for a church, and uh, they formed it. He became the first African-American that was ordained through the AME church. Here's the great part of that. You may, you may know these names. Benjamin, Benjamin Rush and Robert Ralston were some of the first people to financially back the AME church. The interesting thing about them is they're also signers of the Declaration of, the in, of Independence. So literally, as America was being birthed with all of the segregation and even slavery, there was still a few that said, I'm going to finance the AME church. So when you see the AME church, America financed the AME church. And so we thank God for the contribution of Bishop Richard Allen. It is because of men like him that men like me get to do what I do and love to do, which is serve this community by, uh, by pastoring and by serving the local church. So can we thank God for Bishop Richard Allen? Amen. Well, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and meet me in 1 Peter. 1 Peter is where we're going to be. You should get comfortable in 1 Peter. We will be there for several months. I will take some breaks, but we will be in 1 Peter for a while. If any of you have been a part of our church for any amount of time, one of the things that you'll quickly pick up about our church is we feel most comfortable 
when we are walking through scripture, when we are walking through books of the Bible, yes, we do topical series. We just got out of a series that we did on discipleship. We also did a series on the church and uh, we've done a series on prayer. But the most comfortable place for our church is to be in a book of the Bible. Uh, Paul talks about this in Acts chapter 20 when he talks about that I didn't shrink away from declaring to you the entire council, the whole council. As our covenant community members stood up here, one of the things I committed to was preaching through the whole council of God. And when we pick books of the Bible, it allows us to do that because I don't get and I would do this if we weren't in a book. I don't get the option of being able to say, well, I'm going to talk about that and I'm not going to talk about this. I'm going to preach about that. I'm not going to preach about this. When you go through a book, you got to preach every single thing that the scriptures are talking about. And so we'll be in all five chapters of First Peter. You should put your a bookmark or something there. Take some notes in that book. By the time we when you open your Bible, it should just kind of fall open to First Peter because we will be in First Peter for a while. This is known as expositional preaching. That means we just go verse by verse, line by line. And so I'm excited to do that today. Uh, you'll see how long it's going to take us by the fact that I'm only doing two verses today. So if you can meet me in First Peter 1, verse number 1 is where we'll start. It says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles, you should underline that because that's going to become very important for you to understand the rest of the book. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galilee, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bethania, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. I want to preach today from the topic entitled Elect Exiles. The same thing I ask you to underline is what our sermon theme, our sermon topic will be today. Elect Exiles. Let us pray this morning. Lord, as we begin this book, we do, we do so with great anticipation. We, we pray that you would meet us every single time we open up your word. Thank you for your word because it does have the ability to uh, really get at us in, in ways that conversations don't, in ways that good counsel and good advice doesn't. The word of God has a way to pierce down deep into the heart, not even just the head for intellectual reasons. Father, you need no invitation, but nevertheless, we invite you to move upon our hearts today as the word of God is preached. We trust every single word in this book. We trust every sentence, every comma, every period. There's nothing in your word that we do not trust. We trust it, Lord, and we fully devote ourselves to it this morning. So as we walk through 1 Peter, as we walk through this entire series, particularly these two verses today, would you meet us? May Jesus Christ be glorified. May he be preached and may he be proclaimed. Pray that you would grant me physical strength as I walk through your word today. It's in Christ's name we give glory. Amen. In some sectors of the church, they practice what's known as Ash Wednesday. Some of you may have been a part of an Ash Wednesday ceremony. Ash Wednesday typically happens on, not typically, it happens on the first day of Lent every year. Uh, Ash Wednesday is also known as the Day of Ashes because of the practice of taking either charcoal or some type of ash and rubbing it in a cross uh, to, to resemble a cross on the forehead of the congregants. The idea is for a pastor or a priest or the officiate 
to literally take it, to take some dust or ashes and put it on the forehead. And as he's doing that, typically what the priest is going to do is he's going to pull a line from Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, where it says, remember that you are but dust. Remember that you are but dust. Every congregant that comes up, he will quote the same thing. Typically, that's what happens. Now, whether you agree with Ash Wednesday or not, nevertheless, Genesis 3, 19 should be a reminder to us today that you are but dust. And in an amazing way, Genesis 3.19 really has the ability to remind us of our mortality. We are but dust. James says it this way. The book of James says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such a town and spend a year there and we'll trade and we'll make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. I love this question. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then you vanish. You literally got up this morning. You brushed your teeth. You put your clothes on. You got the kids ready. You either took an Uber. Uh, maybe you took Lyft. You took the B25, the, B20, the B15 to get here for me to simply tell you that you're going to die. I mean, it's that simple. You are going. I don't care how much spinach you eat. I don't care if you have a lifelong membership at Planet Fitness. You've cut out all GMOs in your diet. You know, you're gluten-free. Like, you exercise. You have an expiration date. Everybody in this room does. And it doesn't matter what we do. We cannot move or determine what that expiration date is. Now, you can live healthy. And I, sh I encourage all of us to eat and live healthy. But the reality is... No matter how healthy you eat, you will not live forever. We all should be reminded. You are but dust. Genesis 3.19. You are but dust. And as we walk through 1 Peter, that is, what, that is what Peter is going to talk to us about today. If we understand that we are but dust, why do we live life here on earth as though we're going to live forever? Why do we store up and, and, and get fat bank accounts and spend all of our money on ourselves? Do life unto ourselves as though this is your home. Reality is this is not your home. And what Peter does well in the book of First Peter is it's almost like he grabs us by the lapels and he tells us this is not your home. This is not your home. If you've trusted Jesus Christ, you are literally just passing through. This is not your final resting place, but this is a place that we are passing through. And as we begin the book of First Peter, it behooves us to get acquainted with the author of the letter, First Peter. Let's consider verse number one and see who wrote this letter. Verse one says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. First, let's lift up the name that's given to us, the first word, Peter. It is astonishing, like, this is a big deal that Peter wrote the book of 1 Peter. Many scholars have suggested that Peter couldn't have written this book. I've re read this week many, many counter-arguments that say Peter didn't write the book simply based on the fact that they think the book is too well written. It's too well written for Peter to write. And here, here's one of the quotes that I, I saw earlier. It said, Peter couldn't have written this letter because, here's the quote, the vocabulary in this letter is too rich and the engaging rhetoric flow is too far above the intellectual capacity of Peter. Here's the thing, though. I don't disagree with that. Peter, think about Peter, like the intellectual capacity of the five 
uh, chapters that we're going to read in the book of 1 Peter is far above the intellectual capacity of a fisherman in the first century. Peter was not a lawyer. He was not an educated. In fact, let me read what Acts chapter 4 verse 13 says. This is what it says about Peter's IQ. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were, here it is, uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The scriptures just called our boy Peter uneducated. The scriptures just called Peter a common man. Now, this doesn't water down the text in any way. In fact, I think it supports and strengthens the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired an uneducated man to write the, the letter to the church at, uh, in these five different cities. This is amazing to me. And, and some of you in here are, are, are very educated. Some of you have bachelor degrees. Some of you have master's degrees. I heard one young lady in our church here is working through her dissertation, working on her PhD. Some of you in here are already doctors. Some of you are lawyers. You have really great jobs. You are, we are educated people. But here's how the Holy Spirit works. Think about all of the education levels that are in this room. Yet centuries later, we are sitting down reading a book from an uneducated man. Only the Holy Spirit can. And, and let me put application here. It's a little early. You know, preaching class, they tell you don't put application too early. But here's application for you. Just the fact that Peter, an uneducated man, wrote this book that we are not just studying, that we're not just reading through, but we're trying to apply our lives after. Just the fact that God used an uneducated man should be proof to you that God doesn't need you to have the education level for what he's calling you to do. He doesn't need you to have the skill set, the qualifications. Others may be able to do it better than you. But the reality is, he used Peter. He could have used anybody. And centuries later, we're not. He didn't just write one book, but there's another book that he wrote, Second Peter. And we're sitting here studying. This is what this is what I love. God can use uneducated common men to to influence the scripture. So you need to stop looking at what you don't have. You need to stop looking at your bank account. You need to stop looking at the fact that others say you can't do it. Reality is, let me just go ahead and be honest with you. You don't have the skill set, but God does. And God is able to use uneducated people to accomplish great things. Peter wrote this book, and he is not a scholar. I love that the Holy Spirit breathes on it. And so we're introduced now to the, to the, the, um, the author of this book, which is Peter. But now we're also going to see that he's not just the author, but now we're going to see that he's an apostle as well. That becomes important as we read through this book as well. Look back at verse number one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Wayne Grudem writes in his commentary, the only office that has the words of Jesus Christ is an apostle. Like there, there's no other office in the scripture that you see that has of Jesus Christ. You don't see deacon of Jesus Christ. You don't see elder of Jesus Christ, apostle of Jesus Christ. And what that is basically telling us is everything that's written in this book that we will be studying for the next several months, maybe up until the end of the year, everything that's written in this book is Holy Spirit led from an apostle. That means this isn't a book filled with just good ideas. 
It's not a book that we should pick and choose what we can obey and what we will obey. No, Peter begins the letter by saying, I'm an apostle. What I am writing to you is not just some suggestions for you, but what I'm writing to you is a command of the Lord. Paul also was an apostle. He shared this apostolic um, title with Peter. This is what Paul says. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, we, talking about the apostles, impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Peter picks this up in 2 Peter verse number 3, chapter 3, verse number 2. You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. I love this one. If those weren't crystal clear, this one is. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37. This is what Paul says, he, which was also an apostle. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Early before the New Testament was completed, Peter, Paul and Peter are saying, what I'm writing to you is on the same weight as the Old Testament that you consider as sacred writings. So he is saying, I'm not writing something that's a good idea. Paul just said in 1 Corinthians 14, I'm writing to you a command of the Lord. So what we are reading, this, this is important for us to note as we're walking through 1 Peter, because it's easy for us to read by the time you get to chapter 2 and chapter 3, it's easy for you to fall off and say, nah, I can obey one, but I won't obey chapter 2. No. That's not what Peter is talking. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, what I'm writing to you is a command of the Lord. He is throwing his apostolic weight around, saying, yes, Peter, I wrote this book. I'm uneducated. Oh, but I'm an apostle. So what I am saying to you is influenced by the Holy Spirit. It is as though God himself is speaking to you through the word. That's exactly what it is. And the early church would have recognized that the apostles' writings held the same weight as the Old Testament sacred text. And so now that we've been introduced to the author, we've been introduced to the fact that he's an ap apostle, it's important for us now to turn to who is the audience. I'm sorry we have to do this work in verses 1 and 2 in order to understand the rest of this book. Now we get to turn to who is the audience. Let's see who the audience is. Verse number one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are, I told you to circle this, elect exiles. Peter is saying exactly who he is writing to. Peter is writing to the elect exiles. Before we can deal with elect and exiles, let's deal with them separately. Who are the elect? What does it mean that you are elect? It's simple. Don't want to overcomplicate this. The elect of God are those who are chosen for salvation. Elect literally means to choose. Every four years, we get to elect a president. I know many of us are looking forward to the next four years, but every four years, we get to elect a president. Every four years. And so what that means is we get to choose who serves in the Oval Office. And so what God does is when it comes to salvation, he elects, meaning he chooses who is going to be unto salvation. And it's chosen purely based on his sovereign will and his love. That's how he's elected. So when we read elect, don't just think that 
Peter is talking to the elect exiles in ancient time. If you are sitting in this room and you've trusted Jesus, you are God's elect. You are God's chosen people. Let me put Bible there because I think it's important for us to understand this as well. It's not just I don't just believe in the election of God. I believe based on the scriptures that his election is unconditional, meaning you don't have to perform for God to elect you. He chooses you purely based on his own perfect goodwill. Romans chapter nine, verse 16 says, so then it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Romans chapter 10, verse number 20. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. First Timothy 1, 9. If you are writing these down, these are good verses about to support unconditional election. Second Timothy chapter one, verse nine who saved us and called us to hold to a holy calling, not because of works done by us or because of our own purpose and grace, which he has given us in Christ Jesus before the ages begin. Last one, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Listen to how many times the word chosen is used or chose is used. But God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the, the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing these things. Then it says in verse number 29, so that no human being may be able to boast in the presence of God. That means none of us will be able to sit in heaven banging our chest, proud that we got in because of our performance. No, the scripture just said it's not based on human will, purely based on a sovereign and a good God. And so Jesus even says, he says, you, you didn't choose me, but I have chose you. And so the moment that you've given your life to the Lord, maybe you gave your life to the Lord in a setting like this where the preacher called you and you got up and you said, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. You got down the aisle, you came up and you said, I want to give my life to the Lord. Can I suggest to you, while you were in your seat, God chose you. You didn't choose him. And the fact that you did feel like you chose him is really evidence and supports the fact that he already chose you. Can I be honest with you? Left up to you, you would never have chosen God. Left up to your own goodwill, there was nothing in you good enough to say, I want God. God always chases us. It's the mouse chasing the cat. You don't see it. The cat always chases the mouse. And so what we see here, when, Paul, when Peter talks about the elect, he's talking about the chosen, the one that God chose. And in the Old Testament, Israel was known as God's chosen. All throughout the Old Testament, you would have seen Israel as God's chosen. And when God chose not just Israel, but you, he chose you when you were helpless, when you couldn't get it together. That's what I love about God is he doesn't select you when you've got yourself together. He selects you when you're still trifling. He selects you when you can't get it together. In fact, if you guys would allow me to read a couple of verses, we have to do these foundational pieces Write this verse down, Acts, uh, Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16 is, is a powerful display of God's ability to choose, and not just the fact that he chooses, but what he does after he chooses you. 
There's a few verses I want to read in here. Verse number four is Ezekiel chapter 16. And just to set this up in context, this is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. This is what he says in verse number four. As for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water and cleansed, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped into swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out. This is important. You were cast out into the open field for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. Now watch what God does in verse number six. And when I passed by you, I saw you wilding in your own blood. I said to you, in your blood live. And then he says it again. I said to you, in your blood live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. You grew up and became tall and arrived in full adornment. This is him talking to the church, his elect. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown and you were naked and bare. Verse 8. When I passed by you again, I saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corners of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made a vow to you, and I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord. We talked about covenants in our Bible study. And you became mine. Then I bathed you. Look who's doing this. Then I, God, bathed you with water and washed off the blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered clothing and shone and showed you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and chains on your neck. Verse 12. And I put a ring on your nose and I put earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were abhorred, adorned, listen to this, with gold and silver. And your clothing was fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. And you ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful, advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect. This is the church. Through the splendor that I have bestowed upon you, declares the Lord. Notice what happened throughout this passage. God says, I walked by. You were in an open field, wilding in your own blood. I walked by and picked you up. So in the beginning of what we read, he said, you were in open field, wilding in your blood. By the time we get to the end, God says, no, then I took you and I adorned you. And then it says, I, you, I put gold and silver and fine linen and silk and you advance to royalty. Only God is able to take someone that is wilding in their own blood, pick them up and adorn them and advance them to royalty. This is God's unconditional election. That is what he does when he elects you. He doesn't elect you on his team because you're so cute. No, you are wilding in your own blood. He does not select you because you get up at six o'clock in the morning and have devotional time. He didn't elect you because of any of that. And we're going to see that in the text. He elected you because he is gracious. He elected you because he is loving, because he cares. It's not because you're cute. It's not because you have natural hair and you got all the product. No, he selected you purely based on his own love and his own character. This is the elect of God. But he doesn't just say, Peter doesn't just say, I'm writing this letter to you because you're the elect. He says the elect exiles. This is important for us. Let's look back at the verse. 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. We talked about election. Now it's important for us to talk about exiles. Unfortunately, even though we read Ezekiel and saw what God did for his elect, which at that time was Israel, Israel wandered off in their affections. In fact, the Old Testament is just a repeat. I mean, it's repetitious. You see God forgiving Israel, Israel lusting after other gods, God forgiving Israel, and over and over and over and over again. But what you see here is what God does is he kicks them out because of their disobedience. And he sends them to Babylon to be exiled. So when you see elect and exiles, though, those two words shouldn't go in the same sentence, let alone next to each other. But Peter redefines for us this morning what an exile is. Peter does not say that an exile is an exile because of disobedience. By the time you get to the New Testament, Peter is not saying disobedient exile. This isn't a negative connotation. What Peter is saying is you're in the exile because you're not at your final resting place. You're an exile because you've trusted in Jesus, but you live here on earth. That is what Peter is talking about, which is why he says to the elect exiles and names five cities. He's saying you're spread out all over the earth. Our citizenship is not here, but your citizenship is in heaven. In fact, Philippians chapter three, verse number 20 supports this. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we wait a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've trusted Jesus, you're in exile. This is not your home. Remember, Genesis 3.19, you are but dust. This is not your home, not your final resting place. We know that that exile here isn't used because of disobedience. For the simple fact that three other times in this passage, in in this uh, first chapter, Peter is going to talk about how obedient they are. In fact, in verse number two, which we'll get to, he talks about their obedience. And so exile here isn't as a result or a consequence because of disobedience as the elect in the Old Testament was. No, exile here is you're here on earth, but your citizenship is in heaven. Read verses 2, verse 14, and verse 22 on your time, and you'll see how obedient these believers were. You are but dust. In fact, exile here is the best way to describe an exile is today what we would call an immigrant. What we would say as an immigrant is what you and I are if we've trusted in Jesus. You're an immigrant here. Sitting at your home, which is why I laugh when I looked on social media this week and last week and saw believers, Jesus lovers going, yeah, support, we support the travel ban. Lock, like, lock them out. Don't let them in. Hold, who are you? You're an exile. Who are you? You're an immigrant. How dare we sit and say, no, don't let an immigrant in as though this, we are more patriotic than spiritual. America is more Christian in Christianity in America has more of allegiance to patriotic stuff than we do spiritual stuff. No, you don't tell anybody. We can't let you in. You sh- what if God, what if Jesus Christ sat on his throne and signed an executive order not to let exiles in? You and I wouldn't get in. But Jesus Christ, in his love and mercy, took an immigrant, you took you and said, I'm going to let you on in because of my great love. And I know you're sitting there like, I'm not an immigrant. I was born in Kings County Hospital here in Brooklyn, New York. But then Jesus go on and say, but you must be born again. 
And when you're born again, your citizenship is not here. The problem with believers today is we look too much like we live here. When the reality is you are passing through. Genesis 3.19, you are but dust. Yet we look like this is our citizenship. And, and the truth is, you can always tell an immigrant. Like, let's be honest. If someone came here from another country, they eat different food, they dress differently, they probably speak a different language. Yet, as Christians, the Bible says your citizenship is in heaven. Yet we speak the same language as the world here. We look like the world. We eat the same stuff they do. We don't eat off the word of God. We eat off of everything else when really an immigrant should look, smell, act like where they came from. You're from heaven. Your citizenship ain't here. Philippians 3.20, your citizenship is in heaven. I get to travel a little bit because of being a pastor. There are times where I have to travel. And when I travel, I'm very unorganized and I forget things often. And so when I travel, I'm, I'm grateful for airports that have different types of shops in them, whether they have duty-free shops, they have clothing shops. I, I'll forget toothbrushes and earphones. I'll forget socks. And so I often find myself stopping in the airport to pick something up. Now, the airport typically is a place that everybody in the airport is just passing through. Nobody lives at the airport. Everybody's passing through. So the, the thought of putting these shops in the airport is for you to pick something up quick as you keep on moving. You know what I've never seen in the airport? A stack of shopping carts. Because the reality is the airport knows that they want you to enjoy your time here, enjoy yourself, be a patriot, get some, get some of this stuff from our stores, buy stuff, but they don't want you to load up. So they don't put shopping carts for you to load up. And that is exactly how it is with God. He puts you here on earth to be an agent of change, not to load up. But our problem is we've loaded up. We've pulled out the shopping cart and we've loaded up. But the reality is this is not your home. Jesus says it best in Matthew 6, verse 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth rust, where moth and rust destroys and thieves break in. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Christians aren't meant to load up. Now, I'm not telling you to be reckless with your finances. I'm not telling you to give all your money away. But I will say how you spend your money is a reflection of where your citizenship is. How you spend your time is a reflection on where your citizenship is. It's crazy that most of us say, I trust Jesus, I trust Jesus, I trust Jesus. You don't give to anything that's the things of God, to his kingdom. You don't give time. You don't give, you don't invest in people. You don't help yourself to spiritually grow and get into relationships. We want to be isolated as we talked about the last three weeks. But the reality is, it's not your home. Passing through. Genesis 3.19, you're but dust. And I want to keep reminding you of that because your mortality becomes important as we get through 1 Peter. He's talking to elect exiles. This is not your home. You were passing through. Let's keep going for the sake of time. Verse number one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. Look at this. Of the dispersia in Pontus, Galilee, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bethania. Five cities Peter just named. That he is saying the elect exiles, when it says in the dispersion, he's talking about the scattered. 
believers that are scattered throughout these five cities. Now, what you should be asking is why in the world does Peter name these five cities in this exact order? When I first read it, I thought he named Pontius first because I said, surely. Now, later on, you're going to see, not today, but later on in the series, you're going to see that they were under intense persecution. Believers were under persecution. So I said, well, maybe he named Pontius because they were the most persecuted at the time. So he had to quickly get the letter to him until I did some historical research and found out that during that time, the first city, Pontius, and the last city, Bethnia, were actually under the same province. They were not only neighbors, they were connected. When you, if you flip to the back of your Bible and look at a, at a map, you'll see Bethnia and you'll see Pontius connected by the same province. So the only conclusion that you can come up with here, and we don't exactly know why he named them in these orders, but the logical sense for me would be that he named them in these orders to make sure that the letter hit all of the churches in a circular motion to ensure that, like, if it gets back to Bethnia, I know it made it to the other ones because you didn't go like this to get it. You went in a circular motion in order to get the letter there, which is important because this is, out of all five of these cities that are named, this is 300,000 miles of land that this person had to circulate the letter in Bethnia and Galilee and Cappadocia and Asia and in Pontius. So Bethnia was the last city to get the letter, which is crazy because they literally had to wait for the letter to get to them. It's amazing that we have the word of God at our fingertips and we don't read it. We got the word of God in 663 languages. We got Bible apps. I mean, you don't even have to you don't even have to read the word anymore. You can drive in your car or listen to your phone and just listen to the Bible. Yet we are the most unread biblically people in all of Christianity, in all of history. We don't read the word. And yet we got the word of God at our fingertips. And Bethnia had to wait for it. And they were under persecution and they had to wait for the word of God. Let's keep going. Verse number two. Let me read verse one to make sure it flows. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion of Pontius, Galilee, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bethnia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge here, the, the Greek word is prognosis. It, it just, it literally, it's a big word to say to, that God knew in advance. Foreknowledge means that God knew in advance. And now he's talking about salvation because he was already talking about election. Verses one and verses two are connected. So he's talking about his choice in saving you wasn't based on, again, wasn't based on your performance, but was already set in motion. It said foreknowledge. It was set in motion before you got here. It was set in motion before you were a twinkle in your father's eye. Let me go back further than that. It was set in motion before the water was created, before animals were created, before Adam and Eve created. God looked into time in his foreknowledge and said, I'm going to choose you. And he didn't choose you because you would choose him. He chose you again because of his mercy. Put Bible there again, Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 4. Even as he chose us before the foundations of the world that we should be home, holy and blameless before him. Did you hear what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4? You were chosen or elected before the foundations of the world. 
which means that your salvation, again, is not based on your performance. It's not based on your ability. It's not based on merit. It's not based on how good you are, but it is purely based on God the Father, according to his foreknowledge. Peter emphasizes here. He emphasizes the sovereignty of God in initiating salvation, but not just initiating it, also keeping you saved. Let me show you that in the text. There's another propositional phrase here that I want you to consider. Verse number two, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father in the sanctification of the spirit. And so the same God that decided to save you or elect you or choose you. The scripture now tells us that the spirit sanctifies you. What does sanctification mean? Sanctification simply means progressive, progressive growth. Your spiritual growth. And so God isn't only concerned with the fact that he chose you, but he chooses you knowing that you're going to grow in him because of the spirit's work. He talks about this in chapter two as well. Verse number two, like newborn infants long for the pure and spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Elect exiles weren't left here not to grow. No one like no one has a baby and doesn't expect the baby to grow. Like you have a baby and there's a plan in mind. The baby is born with no teeth. Baby's born not walking. The baby's born like he doesn't have a job. He's not able to care for himself or she's not able to care for themselves. But there's an expectation on every parent that this child one day will grow up, get a job, get married, move out, start their own family. It's the same way with spiritual with, with Christianity. God never saved you with the intent that you wouldn't spiritually grow. Which is why if you've been saved for years and still look the same you did on the day you got saved, something's wrong. The scripture just told us in the sanctification of the spirit, the Holy Spirit should sanctify you. There are times where I have to remind my wife, Ty, that my boys aren't babies. I have to remind her, like I, I usually say to her, cut the umbilical cord. Like they're not babies anymore. You're not, they're not connected to you anymore because what she would want to do is hold them as babies. But the reality is they should grow up. Like they didn't have teeth, now they have teeth. They didn't eat meat before, now they're eating us out of a house and a home. And they couldn't talk before, now they won't shut up. It's an expectation that they will grow. That is the expectation that God has for each and every one of us. And, and as it comes to growth and sanctification, what God uses to grow you by the Spirit is trials, is pain, is bad decisions and the consequence of bad decisions, the community, preaching. I don't think you realize how important this moment of preaching the word of God is in your spiritual formation. I don't think we realize it. We, we just, I mean, we think it's, you know, just time for lecture. No, this is the word of God being preached. And this is an important part. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a preach. Yeah, I, I am saying that because... <laughs> But I really believe it. In fact, in verse number 12, if you look down to verse number 12 in the same chapter, Peter talks about this as well. He says, I don't want to jump ahead, but verse 12, he says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that you have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news. So it, Paul doesn't even just say the preaching sanctifies us, the preaching of good news, which is the gospel. This is why it is important every week that I come in here and be redundant and talk about the cross. Why? Because Paul, Peter tells us 
that we are sanctified by the Spirit. And one of the tools that God uses for the sanctification process is the preaching of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about your life. Think back 10 years ago. You, most of us in this room would look at the 10-year-old, our 10-years-ago self and say that person was an idiot. I don't know what in the world I was thinking. I don't know why I dated him. I don't know why I dated her. Like, I don't know why I spent money on that. I don't know why I didn't invest. Why didn't I go to school 10 years ago? Like, we have all these thoughts in our minds about 10 years ago. Consider that you right now sitting in this room, 10 years from now, you're going to be looking back at yourself right now saying, I was an idiot. Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I spend money there? Growth, sanctification of the spirit. We should be spiritually growing consistently. There's one more propositional phrase in here that I want to bring up. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. And so here it is again. God doesn't just save you just to be saved. God saves you so that you can be obedient to be a glory reflector. Like, why didn't God just save us and just take us right up to heaven? He saves you, leaves you here on earth to be obedient so that non-believers can see your life and be able to get a reflection of what obedience to God and Christ looks like. There's something called a melodical line when you're working through a text. There's something called a melodical line. That just simply means you pick up a word that's consistently used or a theme that's consistently used in the chapter. This is good Bible study methods for you. I told you three times obedience is used in chapter one, which means Peter is putting an emphasis on obedience. And so the scripture tells us this morning in verse number two, and he'll build on this thing. Scripture tells us for obedience to Jesus Christ, God saves you so that you will be obedient to him. And I'm convinced that many of us, we submit our life to God as it comes or Christ as it comes to salvation but many of us don't submit ourselves to his lordship. Like you're not, don't just submit yourself to be obedient at salvation, but be obedient and ongoing obedience for the rest of your life. This is why I laugh when I watch award shows. And, you know, people get up and they, you know, they accept an award for I shot your mama in the face. And the first thing they say is, I want to thank God. What they're really saying is, I'm thanking God for this award, for I shot your mama in the face, but I'm really not submitting to his lordship. I'm just kind of throwing his name out there. I'll accept him as savior, but as Lord, as him telling me, because that's what a Lord does. Lord will tell you what to do. A Lord bosses his weight around. That's what Jesus Christ is supposed to be in our life. Obedience for obedience to Jesus Christ. The problem with exiles here on earth is we're more obedient to everything else. We're more obedient to our friends' suggestions and good counsel than we are to Jesus Christ. But many of us in this room today is the word of God is coming at you today. Obedience to Jesus Christ. Let's finish this up. Verse number two, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling of with his blood, I don't have a lot of time to deal with that, but the sprinkling of his blood speaks to the forgiveness of sin so that you won't be disrupted in your fellowship or your walk with the Lord. But really what I wanted to highlight within verse number two was the fact that Peter mentioned all three persons of the Godhead. He mentions all th- he mentions the Trinity here in verse number two. I mean, consider it. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father, the sanctification of the 
Holy Spirit in obedience to Jesus Christ. It's almost like Peter is letting us in on the hidden counsel of the eternal Godhead. And, and the Godhead, the Trinity, always works to get you saved and to keep you saved. Which is why God sends Jesus Christ, the Son, down to die on your behalf. And then for you to accept Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has to remove the scales from your eyes, open a dead heart so that you can see Jesus Christ. And then Jesus Christ lives on this earth. And then when he's about to die, Jesus says, it's better that I go away so that the comforter can be sent. And so Jesus then pro proclaims the Holy Spirit's work in your life. This is the Godhead at work in your life. If you think that you were saved because of yourself, you were not. But I'll go so far as to say, if you think that you're still saved because of yourself, it's not. You are saved purely based on the work of Jesus Christ and the Godhead. Let's finish this now. Peter ends our time today not by pronouncing a blessing over the elect exiles, but by praying for them. Look at the last line. This is a prayer. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. It wouldn't be a prayer if he dropped the may and just said, grace and peace be multiplied to you. But he doesn't. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He is pronouncing grace to be dispensed over the elect exile's life. And he's pronouncing peace over their life. And the reason he has to pronounce peace is because as we go through this letter, you will see that the persecution that hits the elect exiles, they need the peace of God. Question on the table for you is, how are things with your, is there peace in your life? Are you and God good? Can I say grace and peace to you? Notice when our covenant community members stood up here, I said, this, this is only, grace and peace is only supposed to be a greeting for believers because there is no grace and there is no peace outside of knowing Jesus Christ. Outside of knowing Jesus Christ, you still have the wrath of God remaining on you. I don't want to sugarcoat it this morning and make you think that the wrath of God is not on you. No, the wrath of God remains on you. The reason the believer can sleep well at night is because we know when we stand before God, the wrath of God was satisfied. How was it satisfied? Jesus Christ on the cross took all of your sins, past, present, and future, and put them on himself. And as he does that, he dies in your place. So the death that Jesus Christ, as brutal, as gross, as, as violent as it was, that should be us. And here's the thing. If you haven't trusted Jesus, that will be you. But Jesus Christ is, he, he is our scapegoat. He is our meal ticket in. We get in heaven and to enjoy God forever because of Jesus Christ. And he didn't have to do it. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Maybe that is you. Maybe you, you, you've come in here today and a friend, you lost a bet and a friend drug you here to church. Maybe you're here because you had nothing else better to do today. Maybe you're here because before you turn up at the Super Bowl party, you just want to come here and, and, and be amongst people. But maybe you haven't given your life to the Lord. And you've given your life to the Lord. You're not saved because you come to church. You're not saved because you pray this morning. You're not saved because you repeated a prayer that somebody told you to pray. 
You are saved because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You are an elect exile if you've trusted Jesus. And you as well need prayer. Paul ends this by praying for a specific reason because he knows that in order for the elect exiles to endure the persecution that will come in the rest of this letter, they need God's sovereign work in their life. Have you trusted Jesus today? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this letter. Thank you, Lord. Continue to clarify our identity as exiles. Help us to feel the weight this morning of the fact that we're not home. Those that are comfortable, Lord, I ask that you would shake them up. Those that are building their entire stock here, would you shake them up? Help us to live lives that reflect that we're immigrants. We're exiles. May Genesis 3.19 be ever before us. We are but dust. We were made through dust. And to dust we shall return. But after we die and pass through this life. We will then stand before our maker. And Lord as we stand before you. I am fearful that some in this room do not know you. I am fearful that some will stand in this room and say, accept me because I've done this. Father, I pray that you would remove their own righteousness. Remove their own performance. Help them to lean on you. And those of us that are elect exiles that have trusted in Jesus. Father, may we realize the sanctifying work of the spirit. That we would not look the same. That we would not act the same but that people would see us and know that we are from a different kingdom, not a different country, not a different nation, not a different tribe, but we're all in here, different ethnicities, all under one color, and that is the red, that's the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for those that have trusted you. We pray that you would continue to work on us and let this, let this letter be instrumental in helping us to see how important it is for us to live as elect exiles. It's in Christ's name that we come before you. Amen.